Hello, welcome back to Anecdotal Notes, the Outer Edge of Reality podcast. I'm your host, James Aiken, and your other host is here, Steve High. Hello, interwebs. Hello, all across the world. That, it's a wonderful thing, you know, having grown up um, in the pre-internet world, mm-hmm. the fact that, that you and I can sit down and, and do this simple little uh, underground guerrilla podcast, mm-hmm. and, you know, I've already seen that uh, we've had listeners from abroad, and mm-hmm. even uh, in a technically abroad, I saw one from Alaska. Wow, yeah, that abroad. that's abroad. I mean, you know, that's abroad as it gets. It's yes, yeah, it's, it's not the continental Fourier, but people from all over. I think the great focus has been, you know, people from the southeast. But we are sort of a southeastern show, and we're going to deal with things like that. And with that in mind, we thought that uh, this week we're going to veer off of Bigfoot for a little while and go to another Georgia folkloric legend. Although uh, I question whether or not it is folklore. You know, we find in legends always that there is a kernel of truth. And along the uh, southeastern coast, of the state of Georgia. And we're very fortunate in Georgia, if you've never been to Georgia, uh, in the mountains in the north, we have the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, We have a Piedmont area between the mountains and the coast, which was the area that lots of uh, farming and agriculture, and still lots of agriculture now in what they call the coastal plain in southern Georgia. But over on the coast, in one day you could presumably be on the beach and in the evening have dinner in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Georgia's, we've been very blessed that way. But if we journey over, you know, we, we leave Macon and we go I-16 over to Savannah and mm-hmm. we turn south on I-95, we would find ourselves uh, in a very short time, probably about an hour, we'd find ourselves in the environs of Darien mm-hmm. and Brunswick, Georgia. Mm-hmm of which Dr. Lynn has family down in the uh, Brunswick area. Hello to them if they're listening. And there is a river there. And the river is called the Altamaha River. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, having fished most of the coast, I'm a passionate, or at least I was, I hope to be again, but I was a passionate inshore, offshore saltwater fisherman in my youth. Mm-hmm. Went many hooks, took many boats far out and you know, pursued that. That was the, that was more or less my hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an expansive, deep river, mm-hmm. uh, at least as deep in, at the mouth in the the estuarine area as the Savannah River. Mm-hmm. Which, in, in fact, you know, this is an aside, but they're dredging that out to be able to take container ships in Savannah now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're deepening the channel. That's a big project that's yeah, going on. Yeah, a lot on. of those ports are expanding down there. Yep. They, uh, in fact, they were removing a Civil War ironclad that had been sunk in the channel. Mm-hmm. Okay, been there for a long time. But anyway, in the Altamaha River, according to all the way back to the lower Muscogee Indians, mm-hmm. is a creature. Mm-hmm. And this creature is said to be 
either a very large eel or some kind of giant sea serpent. Mm -hmm. And it's seen on more than a rare occasion mm -hmm. by people who frequent Daltamaha River. Mm -hmm. And apparently the story goes back for quite some years too, possibly into the early last century and probably even before then. Right. I mean, I, you know, if I feel like if it were, if it was, uh, it's probably hundreds of years old. Could be. Simply because of the, uh, the fact that it was a taken fact mm -hmm. among the, the uh, Muscogee Indians mm -hmm. who inhabited the area around it that if you go in the river, mm -hmm. you may encounter this thing. Mm -hmm. So. We have a nice long, I don't know, perhaps because most of the, the First Nations and Native American people did not have a written, but they had an oral tradition which was passed down, which can, I have to say, be as accurate mm -hmm. as uh, written traditions. Um, something in comparison to, uh, say, uh, Loch Ness or some of the others mm -hmm. that are, have a European origin. Absolutely. There, there have been stories of, of sea serpents and sea monsters up and down the coasts of North America on both sides, the Pacific and the Atlantic, for as long as anybody knows. And of course the southeast U.S. We're in Georgia, Florida is no exception. And the descriptions and, the, and stories that I've seen about about the creature that is seen in the, in the Altamaha River, and it goes by a couple of different names. I've seen the name Alti. I've seen the name the Altamahaha mm -hmm. is another one. And usually those stories center around an animal that doesn't really make its home in the river. It probably makes its home out of the ocean. Mm -hmm. But it comes into the rivers to live part of its lifespan. Maybe it's spawning, maybe it's just going in there in, in search of food. Mm -hmm. uh, as several different ocean-going species like bull sharks and things like that are known to do. That they can live in the salt water, but they're adaptable to brackish and some fresh water, so they tend to go f fairly far up into the rivers looking for food. Well, in fact, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, they've caught bull sharks <coughs> in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, in the mm -hmm. Mississippi River. Yeah. You know, so... Why not? Why wouldn't uh, a creature, especially if they were spawning or mm -hmm. that sort of uh, element like a salmon, they, they return, they spawn, because you wouldn't want your little ones to be out in uh, deep blue water yeah. to be predated upon, and mm -hmm. they would be the biggest thing in the river. So yeah. it makes sense, you Absolutely. say, to me. Yeah. And uh, something else that, you know, having grown up here, um, I know, you know, many people uh, say, well, you know, obviously it would have been caught by yeah. this point. That's, you know, that not really. It, it goes into the, the, the old argument, like, you know, we talked about in the previous episodes of Bigfoot, about it goes, it goes into the, the thing about the, uh, the perfection of, of the powers of human observation. I mean, there's, there's always these arguments about, well, if it existed, somebody would have done right. something caught one, you know, found a dead one, blah, blah, blah. And that really leans on, you know, human abilities and powers that, that may not be all that. That's right. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, t let's take for granted this is not necessarily directly related to the Altamaha. 
Ha ha. Alty. But the the ultimate ha ha is no laughing matter. I'll tell you that. Okay. We'll set the record straight. Set it straight. It's no laughing. It's no laughing matter. But you know, having grown up in Georgia, fished the coast. It was only in the 90s that we suddenly realized that there have a a resident great white shark population Mm -hmm. off Georgia. Now, they migrate north and south along the Atlantic coast. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that the population is perhaps as dense as Australia or South Africa. Mm -hmm. But we got some big hoss sharks. There's one called Mary. And I used to, there's an organization called Mm O-Search. And... uh, they would tag these things and keep up with them. Mm-hmm. You know, it. the last time I checked, Mary was like 15 foot and closing on 3,000 pounds. Wow. Mm-hmm. Huge, big, you know, mm-hmm. what was that Quincy to Porker? Yeah. It was a big Porker. porker. <laughs> I mean, it, a Porker you know, of a shark. You know, the first, it, I remember the first incident was uh, probably that I became aware was in the middle 90s, maybe late 90s. Some people had been out fishing and they said basically a, a, a shark swam under their boat and it had a fin span like a Cessna airplane. Uh-huh. Okay, so yeah. you know, and they promptly, you know, went inshore yeah. immediately They turned this thing around and go in. Mm-hmm. So, I, if our entire life or my entire life, I've never heard of anything about this and I'm pretty tuned into stuff. Mm-hmm. I think I'm an average person. I yeah. watch the news. If these things are out there and we have a known species that we didn't know was resident in the area, mm-hmm. why wouldn't the possibility exist to have a sea serpent in the Altamaha River? I don't see any reason to think that it would not exist. I mean, this, uh, the stories that I've seen about, about the descriptions of, of the animal, it's, if there is an animal, it's anywhere from 30 to 60 feet long. I mean, it's not inordinately large. It's not like 100 feet long or something like that. Right. Um, most descriptions tend to give it a kind of a darkish color, uh, very resembling a long, slender, uh, the way the eyes and the head are. Just pretty much describes a giant eel. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the stories you hear are tend to be kind of the run of the mill. I saw a big thing in the water mm-hmm. type. Fishermen go out there and they'll see like a long dark shape in the water. Uh, I think probably the most dramatic story I've heard about the Altamaha was that there was an individual who said that that he seen it, he saw it a couple of times on the shore of, Alt- of the Altamaha near where apparently there is a large road bridge that goes across the river. And uh, it was one time he said he saw it, it was up on the shore and seemed to be kind of writhing around, kind of like a, a, a mm-hmm. really large snake. And the other time it was like up under the bridge on like one of the concrete abutments, I guess, that goes out from the river and kind of supports it, goes down in the water, and it was kind of up on that. It was basically a brownish, blackish, long, slender eel thing that had very eel like fins. And the most intriguing stories that I've heard about it uh, involve the upwaters and the backwaters of Lake Altamaha, where if if you're familiar with a lot of these rivers, I mean, they tend to be very large toward where they dump into the ocean because that's the confluence sure. of, of all of these waterways. But if you follow them back up in the, into the uh, upriver, 
they tend to get very smaller and a lot of them tend to branch off into these very swampy, very still water areas. Mm -hmm. And I've read a number of stories about people who fish these upwater areas that report uh, smaller versions of these animals that tend to be blackish and one report said that they had seen a number of animals that were like in the three to five to six feet long. Mm -hmm. They were very eel-like and they said the striking thing about them was they had very red fins. And uh, the speculation, and if, if you're interested in reading more about this, if you, if you do like a Google search on the internet on this, on this creature, you'll run into a name of an author by the name of Ann Richardson Davis. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if, if uh, Miss Davis is, is with us any longer or not. She may have passed on, unfortunately, some years ago. I'm not sure of that. But she lived in the area in the area around Darien, and she, for a number of decades, had been uh, uh, gathering evidence and well not really evidence but anecdotal stories and the legends of all about the uh, Ultima River monster and collecting stories from people who lived in the area and I think she has actually uh, written a book or a, a booklet about it that you may have to search far and wide to find but um, she was speculating that the animal may be an extremely large eel that lives out in the ocean that may come up the Altima River to spawn. Right. And uh, most of the stories that have seen farther down in the river, the farther down toward the ocean you go in the river, the larger the animals seem to be. Mm-hmm. And But the gist of, of the stories that are out there about the Altima River monster that are in recent, I mean like modern times, tend to be along those lines. Well, we all know, I mean, there is, it's a very common place for eels like salmon Mm -hmm. to spawn in rivers Mm -hmm. and then transmigrate Mm -hmm. out into deeper ocean. Mm -hmm. You know, they do, I mean, there's a species in England that does that. Mm -hmm. And, And I believe there is actually a redfin species that does a migration, mm-hmm. and uh, I remember a person uh, years ago, I believe it was Dr. Gene Scott, mm-hmm. but he pointed out that it was like they were migrating to an area mid-ocean that had once been mm-hmm. a landmass. Yeah. That was one of his uh, points about, well, could there have been an Atlantis, mm-hmm. but it was a, a, a type of uh, red fin eel. And, you know, I just, to me, it makes logical sense that there would be something going on. Now, is it a plesiosaur? Eh, I would, that's one of those things that, that came up, you know, like when I was very little, when I first started reading about this thing, one of the first things you run into is Loch Ness Monster. And Loch Ness Monster is another lake monster that could, in, in, if, if it ever existed, it could, in, in past times have been a river monster because Loch Ness is just that. It's, it's separated by a series of locks and essentially turned into a big lake. Right. And um, the plesiosaur expl- explanation kind of loses weight because plesiosaurs, for what we know, were air-breathing animals, which means they were kind of like whales and would have had to spend if not a significant portion of their time, at least a good good bit of their time close to the surface breathing. That's true, yeah. 
and wish you would think what if you're over there and say, oh, please, this horse stuck his head out of the water because I had to take a gulp of air. You right. would think it would have been seen more often. I definitely lean more toward, especially given the descriptions that have been given, more toward like the giant eagle. And, you know, and because, and I, I pose that question to you simply because I wanted to reflect off of you and see your opinion. And I thought the exact same thing, mm -hmm. which is, if even if I see, mm -hmm. if if what we are given through science, the depictions of a plesiosaur's head, yeah. I would not have immediately, if I've seen the head of a plesiosaur, mm -hmm. you know, lifting out of the water, yeah. my first thought would not be plesiosaur, it would be mm -hmm. giant snake. Yeah. Because it looks a lot like a giant snake. If you've ever yeah. seen a really large reptilian, yeah. Right, large anaconda. Uh -huh. They have a very sort of prehistoric face mm -hmm. for, you know, they, yeah. they're not like a king snake. Yeah. They have a, a much harsher sort of reptilian mm -hmm. look to them. Yeah. So, to me it just lends it more credible uh, mm -hmm. evidence that this is perhaps an unknown eel. Yeah, and there, there are some precedents for that. Uh, there is a, uh, an anecdote that you see in a lot of books that are compendiums of, of things on river monsters and sea monsters that in the mid to late 1800s, there was a lot of activity. Of course, that time was kind of a, another burgeoning of science, uh, kind of comparable to the, to the Renaissance, you know, that was prompted by a lot of scientific discoveries in engineering and electricity and also the publication of The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin prompted right. a lot of it. And there were a lot of uh, seagoing and far out um, expeditions mm -hmm. on sailing ships trying to get all of the, find all of these uh, species so they can be recorded. And uh, there were a lot of ocean-going trawlers and sailing ships that were casting nets deep into the sea trying to find a lot of, of unknown creatures. And there is a story that one of these trawlers pulled up an eel larvae that was three feet long. Mm. Now, any of, any of you who are a little bit familiar with the eel life cycle, uh, they're born as larvae and they tend to be quite small. Even the larger spe species of eels, the larvae tend to only be like one or two inches long when they're born. Right. And the story was that there was an eel larvae that was readily identified by the scientists on board the ship as a larvae of an eel that was in the neighborhood of three feet long. Now, if you extrapolate that from from known eels, I mean, the adult of that animal could have been 100, 150 feet long. There you go. Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to say. Now, there have been people in, in modern times who have tried to trace that story down, and uh, there hasn't really been a whole lot of confirmation of it, nor any confirmation of what would have happened to that specimen had it been kept or thrown overboard or what. But, you know, the anecdote is out there. You know, it was actually pretty good. If You, you have to deal with a little bit of fishy taste. It might have uh, fried that uh, larvae up. It could be. Yeah, it was a hungry lot, those sailors, especially hey, back in those days. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. Who knows? You know, it's interesting you bring that up. Uh, there's another account which I've read um, about a ship that was uh, traversing between, I believe, Brazil to South Africa mm -hmm. in the South Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And they were out there steaming along, and whoever the uh, officer of the watch was spied a giant eel mm -hmm. on the surface going in the opposite direction. And mm -hmm. they, you know, 
10, 20 minutes. They, they got to sit there and watch this thing swim along going in the other way. And yeah. uh, The name HMS Daedalus yes, rings a bell. Yes, that does ring a bell, yeah. I believe. Mm-hmm. And again, it was a giant eel. So I don't know. I don't know where I fall down on this. Yeah. I have actually, uh, in my life, mm-hmm. uh, like I said, from Savannah River to the Wausau Sound, mm-hmm. on down through the Barrier Islands, and have fished mm-hmm. in the Altamaha River. And I would say um, uh, the Altamaha is not alien to having uh, in. And I'm not saying that the eel would be an invasive species, mm-hmm. but having uh, pretty strange creatures in it. For mm-hmm. instance, some somewhere back, and I don't know exactly uh, the wise of wherefores, but the flathead catfish mm-hmm. was introduced into the Altamaha River. It's mm-hmm. like the one of the places in Georgia that you can go fish for these things, mm-hmm. and we're talking about catfish of enormous size once they've you know lived mm-hmm. uh, a few years and they, they get up to a hundred hundred plus pounds mm-hmm. and the thing as a fisherman is the because the river the the shoreline of the river even is very far inland in Georgia rivers generally have trees budding up right to the banks mm-hmm because they're not traveled well at all in Georgia. We don't we don't have a river industry like say they have in Louisiana or along the Mississippi. We we do have some ports, but the further inshore you go, mm-hmm. the more isolated you'll find the uh, the rivers to be. Some of this is because of uh, geology and geography, mm-hmm. you know, the rivers are too shallow for big ships. But little boats can can go up. I mean, the Savannah River, you can go up to Savannah to Augusta, mm-hmm. okay? And they've been doing that for centuries now, you know. But the Altamaha is not that way. So if you get 40, 50 miles inshore, mm-hmm. you would encounter sandbars, fallen trees, yeah. any of those sorts of things. Something that you really need to be in a small, flat-bottom boat yeah. to be able to traverse. Yeah. And interestingly enough, most of the reports of this creature are coming from people in exactly those type of crafts mm-hmm. or kayaks, silent things, mm-hmm. things that are quiet, yeah. low noise, and they're up there, they, they're fishing for whatever they encounter. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, you know, uh, I'm, I, can, I try to keep an open mind, mm-hmm. though skeptical, mm-hmm. you know. I don't think it's a plesiosaur. Uh, I saw yeah. recently on the internet, um, I thought it, it looked. It was a nice hoax photo. I think. Uh, I mean, it looked really good. Yeah, I don't think I saw that photo. And yeah, and it had like what appeared to be a, a little plesiosaur, and mm-hmm. someone had taken fish or chicken innards mm-hmm. and had kind of placed them alongside the the front near the the fin uh-huh. of uh, this supposed creature, and. You know, in and of itself, without context, if you saw it, you might think, wow, this just washed up. It's a Mm. baby plesiosaur, Mm. just from the photograph, but uh, it it has been investigated, and I think debunked is uh, someone, you know, having fun, Mm -hmm. but why not? 
Why not something like this in our rivers? I don't see any reason why not. I mean, we know there are large species of eel. Now, whether or not there are giant species of eel, but, you know, most of our ocean is unexplored. Yes. Mm-hmm. Less than 10%, isn't it? Yeah, less than 10%. I mean, because mo- most of our knowledge of the ocean is, is around the coastal areas, which is where most of the life is in the ocean, is along the coastal areas where it's shallower. But uh, as far as like deep ocean like trenches, I mean, who knows what comes up from those areas? Well, you know, Dr. Lynn's family at one time owned a crab packing plant in Brunswick. Hmm. I did not know that. Yeah, they were all uh, had boats, mm-hmm. shrimp boats, those sorts of things. And uh, the, the skeptic in me, and I'm going to play devil's advocate for somebody who's out there listening and saying, oh, these guys, they believe anything, you know, and we don't. Mm-hmm. See, that's the thing is we talk about it on here, but you, we're both skeptical about lots of things that we encounter in the world of the unknown. I just wonder, having been around uh, shrimp boats mm-hmm. and knowing how shrimp boats operate with the type of netting that they do, yeah. how they could possibly, I mean, have missed because well, we've mean, been shrimping. What, what? I mean, the industry's been here since the 19th century. Yeah. Well, let's. I mean, let's look at it this way. I mean, this, how, when a shrimp boat operates, how far off the coast does it go? Oh no, they're they're definitely they're not out as far out as the Gulf Stream, but they're they're just depends. They could dredge in shore. It's all seasonal. It's how yeah. they follow the shrimp. Yeah. So. But let's say that the that I would say it's probably a safe bet that that all of the uh, the commercial fishing probably occurs within 10 nautical miles, let's say, of the shore. You know, I don't know. I mean, if you counted longline boats, yeah. longline boats go out in deep blue. Yeah. They go out, they might be five, 600 miles off. Yeah, but a longline boat is not a net boat. It's no, it's not. No, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So I'm thinking if, if you have an animal, let's say it's maybe couple of miles maybe offshore before the continental shelf just kind of takes a dive right and a lot of the ocean life that people experience are concentrated along the coast just because you know it's, it's shallower water and it's you know more plant life and corals and all that kind of stuff there but once you get past that continental shelf and it's and it goes into the deep ocean then that's a lot bigger question mark I mean there's not sure. There's, there's not. I mean, when you start getting into the depths where you, you're starting a mile or more, you know, nobody's, very few people's nets reach down that far. Well, I don't think we. Because if, you, if uh, I'm thinking, if, if there's a large animal, right, that probably, let's say, it makes its living on the ocean floor, out past the continental shelf, where it's sure enough deep, right, it's feeding on all that detritus and stuff that you, you see in the, uh, the films of people in the submarines that go on the ocean floor, there's a tremendous water column above them. Sure. And all of this organic material is literally raining down on the snow. ocean floor. Yeah. It's like snow. It's plankton. It's right. dead plants. It's dead fish, whales, everything and stuff. And uh, if it, because a lot of the large species of sharks, like sleeper sharks and all that, that's mm-hmm. where they live. Mm-hmm. These gigantic... Uh, isopod or theropod looking 
they're, they're essentially giant wood lice and they live on the bottom of the ocean. They right. get like that large. Yeah. They're all bottom feeders on that part of the ocean. What, I mean, just to, just to speculate, let's say there was a species of eel that developed into a giant species that lived on the ocean floor living on this detritus. Right. But as part of its evolutionary pattern, kept the spawning part where it would go up out of the abyssal part in the coast, made a beeline up for this river, right. did its spawning, and then once it got through, it came back and went down into the abyss where nobody ever goes. Right. But no, I think it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Uh, if it followed along the bottom where, the, where most of the nest didn't reach, because most of the shrimpers, you know, the shrimp is, you know, fairly close to the surface because they thrive some of the plankton in the sunlight. Right. Hmm. It's an interesting thought. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how that, you know, uh, to me, it, it's more credible as a story than, for instance, say, the Ogopogo monster. The problem yeah, is... The landlocked, the landlocked lake monsters are kind of... Iffy for me. Yeah. Simply because you have a finite amount of water. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, I mean, I on my boat, the one I, I had in the 90s, uh -huh. you know, I spent the money and I had the thing outfitted with sonar and fish finders and all that stuff. And yeah. a little radar unit, actually. And mm -hmm. I was able to afford all that and I was just, you know, a guy. Yeah. So, you know, I could sit and I could range out 40, 50 miles with the radar and mm -hmm. the sonar, you know, it was nothing for me to be able, if we're getting 2,000 feet of water, mm -hmm. it'll ping back. I'm not saying it was like anything the U.S. Navy has, okay? But, you know, it, I just feel like in a finite body of water, uh -huh. it'll be very easy to quickly assess if there's anything down there. Yeah. Now it's completely different in the ocean. Mm -hmm. You're only seeing, you know, yeah. 100, 150 feet wide maybe at the furthest yeah. from your little uh, yeah. sonar yeah. unit up there, the little. Yeah, I think Lake Okanagan is, is kind of similar to, to Loch Ness in that it's, a, it's not like a round lake like you would think of a lake. Right. It's literally like the bottom of, of a canyon where it's, it's fairly narrow in some places and very long. Right. And I think the maximum depth of, of Okanagan is 900 feet, something like that. Something like that. And, and I think Loch Ness is kind of close to that. It's very I think Loch Ness is seven or 800 feet. Yeah, so it's very similar. There's, there's some interesting things about the lake monster thing. Uh, take Loch Ness, for instance. Um, you hear a lot of anecdotal stories about, you know, heads and necks out of the water, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Who knows if they're true or not or what they're seeing, but the film that you see of what are supposed to be Loch Ness Monster, like the very old black and white film by Tim Dinsdale, who was a very right. famous investigator back then, made, was of uh, just the classic description of something in the water that looked like an upturned boat. Right. A hump. Yeah, a hump in the water. No neck, no tail, or nothing. Just kind of like this looks like the back of an elephant wading through the water. And that's what the Dinsdale film shows. And there was an episode of River Monsters, oddly enough, uh, Jeremy Wade. That I've show. seen that show. Yeah, you've seen yeah. that show. He did a River Monsters uh, episode on Loch Ness, believe it or not. And he came up with the most interesting theory that I thought is extremely plausible about that phenomenon. And, and it's centered on an animal called the Greenland shark. 
-hmm. And because in his investigation, where he did three, he tried to do some mapping of the, of the bottom of the lock and, and its, its characteristics, it very closely resembled uh, the fjords that right. you encountered in like Norway and Denmark and, and Sweden, those places right. along the ocean, where the walls, Loch Ness, apparently, once you get off offshore a little bit, tends to do a little bit of like the continental shelf act, which kind of drops precipitously down. Right. And where you have like what essentially underwater is the site of like this very tall cliff face, where it would actually go down and, and, and go down into the bottom proper. And the Greenland shark is of an extremely large species of shark. I mean, I think they get like an excess of 20 feet for, for some of the, the, the very large ones. Right. Or, or maybe not that long, but they're, they're very large. No, they're, they're, I think they are. They're like in between 20 and 30 feet. The basking shark gets routinely above 30 feet. Yeah. So and it's the, similar in appearance. Yeah. And what the Greenland does is it lives mostly on underwater on that cliff face that goes from the bottom up to almost where the shore is and gets the food and the, that comes down and the animals that live along and that's basically what it feeds on but every once in a while it would be spotted one would be spotted swimming and when they swim they get they're kind of close to the shore where you see their their backs and if you get a large animal, I mean, it literally looks like a large upturned boat. But most of the time they spend on the bottom or on that side of that cliff, just kind of, they're just waiting for something to come by. Very kind of lethargic, very mm -hmm. slow moving animals. And come to find out that before that lock system was built in Loch Ness, it was essentially, in ancient times, had access to the ocean. It was essentially a river. Right, that's true. Yeah, and what the thinking was is that back then the Greenland sharks not only went up into the fjords in Norway, and but if you follow along that arc of where it is, Scotland is in that same mm -hmm. general area, and the fish may have had a population that went up and down the rivers in Scotland because the, if you look at the geography there, it's very similar as far as where that waterway actually goes. So the theory was that what these people may be seeing was the Greenland sharks that were still going in and out. And some of them were actually, he thought, were possibly actually making it through the lock system on the bottom. Hmm. You know, one would get in the lock and get stuck in the lock and be on the bottom where nobody would see it. And the lock would open it would just move on until it finally got in there. They would hang around for a while and it would just come back out. And it's the same behavior they did on there. And I looked at it and said, yes. That's plausible. Very plausible for that. But let's play skeptic. I mean, let's go back into history. Of course, I understand this is uh, an apocryphal tale mm -hmm. in that, you know, it comes, again, though written tradition, mm -hmm. but St. Columba, he, he's come over to mm -hmm. Iona from Ireland, yeah. and he's, you know, he stayed there, but uh, those heathen Picts and Scots over mm -hmm. there, I've got to do something. So he... he journeys over to the mainland, uh -huh. up to the highlands, and, you know, he's out preaching the gospel. Mm -hmm. And he's crossing the lake in uh, his boat. Mm -hmm. Well, all of the descriptions that they gave, at least in the uh, the classic story, mm -hmm. are basically of something more resembling a plesiosaur or really a dragon, uh, like a Chinese dragon mm -hmm. to some degree. 
it comes up, it menaces he and his little group of, I don't know if we call them disciples, but they're, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. they're there and they're working their way across the lake and he rebukes it and mm-hmm. it, you know, sinks back down into the depths, you know. Yeah. So, I don't know. What's uh, obviously yeah, it's kind of odd because there are similar stories for, with a lot of these lake monsters. Uh, Ogopogo, Lake Okanagan is one. I think there are some similar stories with involving missionaries. Uh, there is another famous lake monster in Canada called Memphray, and it is in the French-speaking part of Canada in Lake Memphray Magog, mm. and it is. Um, uh, described as a very similar creature to Ogopogo. And I think there are some, some similar stories about, you know, somebody in ancient times, tribal leader, something going across and encountering this giant thing out there. And there's a battle or, or he chases it off or something. But like uh, in Memphre's case, uh, the natives don't even like to go in the water because like Ogopogo has a reputation for eating people. Right. So, you know, and that, I don't know. I, I wonder about that simply just being, you know, from a tourist aspect, mm-hmm. you know. The very first thing I ever bought on eBay years and years and years ago was a little stuffed Ogopogo. Was it really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, was, it was a souvenir in Lake Okanagan. Somebody listed on there and I bought it. I gave like four bucks for it. How about that? Yeah, a little stuffed Ogopogo, a little serpent about this tall, had a little hat on it and everything. You know, like you said, been up and down that river, the Altamaha, going back to the Altamaha. Uh-huh. You know, there are lots of uh, dragons in the Altamaha River. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're, they're American alligators. Yeah. And I have seen some whopper alligators out there. Mm-hmm. I've seen a couple that I promise were closer to 15 foot than they were to 10. Yeah. Okay, big boys out thundering around and... You know, I seen some big catfish taken out of there. Mm-hmm. Uh, though I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'm more of an estuarine. I like uh, what they call redfish. Mm-hmm. They're wonderful though if you, you know, scale them out and fillet mm-hmm. them and blacken them in an iron skillet. Uh-huh. Yes, it's a, it, 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 it's a wonderful, uh-huh. it's a wonderful meal. Uh-huh. You know, I, I believe because of my forebears, I'm half seal. I mean, I eat lots. <laughs> my brother does too, though. It's like the older you get, it's yeah, like the more yeah, fishy. More fishy, yeah. That's good for give, you. Give me. Uh, yeah, I have, if you say seafood dinner, that means a can of sardines, you yeah, know. So, yeah. but the thing is, is. Do you, you think that these, these could be uh, alligators or crocodiles or some crocodilian? I don't know. It could be a crocodilian. Yeah. I don't know. It would be kind of far-fetched for the for the Canadian ones. Yeah. I can see it for the for the Ultima, even even though the, the descriptions lean very much toward the eel. Well, I just think mistaken identity a lot of times. I think people see stuff if if they're not familiar with the territory, and that lends itself right back to being a good investigator. You know, if you're really going to go out looking for something then you really need to at least sit down with a field guy Mm -hmm. and kind of familiarize yourself with what you are going to see Mm -hmm. that's normally there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But I myself have caught little eels, Uh uh, not in the Altamaha, but it was up in uh, Wausau Sound. Mm -hmm. or No, it wasn't. It was the Ogeechee River. Mm -hmm. I ran into a flock of those one day. Was fishing small, looking for off an oyster bar, looking for sheep's head. Mm-hmm. Okay, 
which again, people used to throw those away, but it is fine, delicate, nice fish. Uh-huh. And uh, but you have to be subtle because uh-huh. their mouths are so small. Yeah. And the hook was small enough that I was using that I would occasionally reel in a really nasty, slimy eel. And these all were, I'm holding my hands up, but say 18 inches long, mm-hmm. and probably about as big around as a dime mm-hmm. on its size. They weren't terribly large. There might have been a couple that were a little larger, a quarter. Mm-hmm. But they were pretty voracious. I mean, they were working on the uh, the shrimp. Mm-hmm. I was I was using live shrimp from the uh, bait well, mm-hmm. and it was you know doing a pretty good job. Actually caught a couple of fish, sheep's head and a couple of redfish. But I remember that day uh, thinking about how tough it would be because they were slimy and if you tried to grasp them to remove the hook, Mm -hmm. they would produce a a copious amount of extra mucus. And in fact, it made the deck of the boat kind of slippery. My boat was yeah. big enough, you know, you stand yeah. up. Plus they have a way, I think, if you hold them, that they kind of knot themselves up on the side of your hand to literally pull their head out of your grasp. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They are they're amazing animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a big delicacy. I fell in love with eating eel in Japan mm-hmm. and, you know, with some teriyaki or bulldog sauce mm-hmm. on a hibachi. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's 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 yeah. fun. I, you you actually you, you just pity the people that prepared it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh my gosh, I'd hate to have to skin it out and do all that. Yeah. I, I tell you what, though, it makes me want to consider. You realize how much uh, eel that would be if we caught that thing. Yeah, really. We could fill up a couple of freezers. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, just just think about monetary. I mean, just. You know, I mean, they love tuna over there. You see what record prices they, the restaurants pay for those big old oh. tunas. Man, if you landed a 50-foot eel. Wow. You're, you're an absolute entrepreneur. About the international market. I never even thought about selling the eel. I, yeah. I was just going to barbecue the eel. Yeah, make some stacks off that sucker. <laughs> I don't know. You know what? I, do, I, I tell you what, though. I do believe, in fact, that... In, I don't know the listeners he's sitting there shaking their head probably at us but yeah. but there's something there okay. and it, it just as a as a trained historian uh, I'm just I'm telling you when you when you're dealing with legend mm-hmm. there is always that kernel of truth mm-hmm. and while we uh, our civilization I don't I tell you the truth I, I think honestly I'm gonna make this statement we owe a great apology to the First Nations and the Native American peoples because they knew about this stuff. It was their habitat. They lived in it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry to say, but, you know, most Europeans come, you know, galloping into this continent mm-hmm. and just basically, uh, oh, well, you know, he doesn't know. He's not from Oxford. So yeah. he has no idea what he's yeah. talking about, even though he grew up his entire life yeah. in that environment, knew the animals and creatures. Yeah, they're, they're, they're just savages. What do they know? That's right. I mean, that, that was the entire attitude in the uh, 18th, 19th, 16th, mm-hmm. you know, and really most of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. But I learned more. I mean, a lot of times the, the, the Native American point of view actually makes some of this phenomena Mm-hmm. make more sense. Mm-hmm. They were saying, I mean, this is off of the Altamaha, but, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 
out on the Navajo reservation. That that was the thing that brought me back out was I heard an investigator, Brenda Harris, out there, and she was talking about behaviors of what this thing does, mm-hmm. the the Bigfoot there. Yeah. And it was behavior that uh, had been dismissed, you know, earlier on in what we did and when we were in the George Smith Research Center. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the online expert people, oh, Bigfoot under the Bigfoot under the, you know. But the simple fact is, you know what Bigfoot was doing exactly in our area, what they said it was doing out there. Mm-hmm. And that day a light bulb went off. And I said, you know, we owe those people a, uh, we owe those people an apology and really, truly a debt of gratitude for, for keeping their, their whole uh, history and oral traditions alive. And so, you know, I, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to, on this one, I'm not, I'm skeptical about the uh, the little baby plesiosaur that washed up on the beach over there. Yeah. I think it was on Amelia Island, maybe, oh, really? somewhere around there. But I'm skeptical about that. But now, I believe that we have something going on in the Altamaha River. Mm-hmm. And if we have it in that river, I can almost assure you that the St. John's, the Savannah, the Ogeechee. Oh, yeah. if, if it's a phenomena of some sort of unknown giant eel, mm-hmm. it's going to be up down the coastline, probably into the yeah. Carolinas, up to North Carolina, and down all yeah. through Florida. Because, you know, around Jacksonville, there's a similar story yeah. of a creature like the Altamaha. They said up there it's like a giant snake-looking uh, mm-hmm. creature, which. It does. I mean, for all the world, when you first pull an eel out, mm-hmm. you know, you want to run and hide. You think, oh, man, I've got a cottonmouth moccasin, mm-hmm. you know, on my, uh, what am I going to do? Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, well, we, you can see that phenomenon all the, way, all the way up and down the east and west coast. I mean, because if, 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 if it originates from the ocean, I mean, it, it could be anywhere. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, eels are pretty hardy animals, so, I mean, it, it could survive all sorts of of extremes as far as water temperatures. So, I mean, you could have those animals coming in in the, the northern rivers. You could have them coming in down here along the west coast also. We just live in an amazing world. We I think there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot. It's an amazing, horrible, dangerous, scary, wonderful. Beautiful world. Beautiful world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's amazing. You, you get up on a spring day and see how beautiful the sky and the, the flowers and all that stuff is and you know on the same day a terrible massacre takes place someplace it's, it's, it's just really odd the way that the biorhythm of our planet operates and unfortunately I think that we're at the base of a lot of it this species called homo sapien mm-hmm. we, I think we kind of muck things up a lot oh yeah I mean if, if I'm a little bit of an amateur historian, and uh, reading back in ancient history is like you bring up Native Americans, but you see the pattern of humanity express itself throughout ancient history as much as you do modern history, with all the evidence that is now starting to come to light of what we call the pre-Clovis mm-hmm. civilization in North America. And for those listeners who are, who are not familiar with the term Clovis, uh, conventional scientific wisdom uh, says that human beings, as in Homo sapiens, 
first crossed into the North American continent around about 12,000 years ago. And the first of those people who came across are identified in the archaeological record by the types of, of stone tools that they used. And their spear points uh, that they use and the arrowheads that are found that belong to these people in the archaeological record very closely resemble a type of tool that is found in some parts of Europe, particularly France, in an area that is known as Clovis. And so the, the civilization that came over 12,000 years ago, that, that wave of people, is known as the Clovis people because their arrowheads resemble the Clovis arrowheads that are from Europe. That's how they got their name. And it was believed for a very long time that nobody, no humans, were over here before that first wave of what's called the Clovis population. And it was such an ingrained belief in archaeology that typically if you excavated a dwelling site and you got down to the strata where you were finding early Clovis artifacts, then typically you did not excavate any further because the belief was that you wouldn't find anything. Mm -hmm. Well now in the last 40, 50 years there has been evidence that has come out that there were in fact human beings here long before the Clovis populations first showed up, and they are referred to in the literature as pre-Clovis people. Now, there are a number of things that coincide with that 12,000-year period. Among them is a very large and very devastating Pleistocene extinction of large animals in North America. Mm -hmm. And where the mastodons, the mammoths, the rhinoceroses, the large cats, the large ground sloths, all of those animals disappeared almost literally overnight. You would think another meteor hit and took out like it did the dinosaurs. And it almost exactly corresponds to the arrival of the Clovis people. Now the funny thing is, is that the pre-Clovis culture implies that there was a culture of human beings that lived here prior to the Clovis wave that somehow reached some sort of ecological balance with those megafauna. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to be really politically incorrect, think about it this way. The, Native, the people that we know now who developed into what we call the Native Americans were essentially descended from those first Clovis peoples who now we suspect not only were immigrants to a country that already had a human population here, they not only wiped out that pre-Clovis population, they wiped out pretty much any animal over here that was larger than a pig within the space of a couple thousand years. Mm. So when you look at Native American populations, I mean, yeah, there were a lot of awful things done to them, but Again, they were human beings. They came over here thousands of years ago, where we came over here, we, or modern Europeans came over here 100 years ago. But their immigration to North America had pretty much the same effect that the white man when they came over. It just happened a long, lot longer time ago than the European exodus. Mm. So that's something to think about. Well, you know, it's. 
when you say the extinction, I, obviously the Clovis people pre, uh, did have a significant impact. When you said the extinction of the Pleistocene, Pleistocene animals, the thing that sprung to mind was like the mammoths that they find in Siberia, and they find them almost flash frozen mm-hmm. sometimes with the food still in yeah, their stomachs and mouths. And it's like this was was happening along the same time frame, mm-hmm. but we're not far enough north here yeah. for us to find any. We don't have permafrost here, so yeah. we, you know, obviously are not going to find it. Yeah. Although I will say, as evidence that I know from our general geographic area, mm-hmm. uh, a mutual friend who's passed away now, mm-hmm. uh, he had in his home, and he was a, a great arrowhead hunter, mm-hmm. but he had several Clovis points mm-hmm. that he had taken from the streams and rivers mm-hmm. around the area. Yeah. So he, obviously, you know, d- there was a, a real presence here. And I, I told him that day, yeah. I said, you know, you have... There, I mean, there, there have been attempts in, in science to to give alternate explanations to the Pleistocene extinction in North America. But... Uh, the fact that it, it corresponds so closely to the arrival of the, the great wave of the Clovis populations. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pre-Clovis civilization, I think, was here, but it was very sparse because those people didn't come over by the Bering Strait landmass or, or any large migration. In fact, they think they, they made their way along the... Uh, the, the, the west coast, you know, uh, like, uh, by boat. Right. Uh, and reached South America, come up by boat, and just kind of hopped along. Right. But there are very small bands of people, and I don't think the population ever got very large. Now, once the Clovis wave hit here, you know, and those peoples who eventually became the North American Indians, which we now mm-hmm. call Native Americans, which is kind of ironic. But um, those, that was the first great wave of human population that was here. And when that hit, I mean, they were killing everything inside, probably either absorbed or destroyed or both the existing small human populations that were already here. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a story that kind of repeats itself throughout history. And you know, you touch on something we had to think about doing a show on, which is uh, the giant skeletons they found mm-hmm. uh, yeah. in actually verified these these things were found 10 12 foot tall uh but apparently homo sapien mm-hmm. you know there were reports uh, at the very beginning of the exploration among the portuguese and stuff of going to places mm-hmm. especially like along uh, the area which is now chile and argentina uh of encountering tribes of these people that were just absolutely enormous towered over yeah the uh, Europeans who were on average like 5'3". Mm-hmm. You were a big guy in Europe if you were 5'8". Yeah. And these these folks were like 7 and 8 foot tall. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It's just an aside. There's there's so many mysteries for us to explore on the show. Well, I mean, we, we're which working is, up which is, to which it. Is what, which is what's... So, we're, we're kind of leading the listener to, to kind of know what to expect in future episodes. Well, I mean, you know, we're, we're working up to... Uh, the Master Civilization show. Mm-hmm. Probably going to end up being two hours, maybe three parts or something, because I've been fascinated by that for years now and all the research into Pumapuku and Tiwanaku and, and just the stuff here. And the fact that I, I mean, I'm sorry, I just fully now believe that uh, in the Andaluvian age, 
you know, there was a, a master civilization that was much more advanced. Mm -hmm. And it was wiped away through whether you want to believe a deluge or something happened. Mm -hmm. some catastro something catastrophic happened mm -hmm. and brought men back down yeah. to the level of the Stone Age again. Mm -hmm. And we are just now beginning to have the technological advances to begin to interpret and understand some of these monuments and things mm -hmm. that were left. And I honestly begin to believe that, uh, for instance, the Great Pyramid, I don't believe for one instance that the Great Pyramid itself or the Sphinx uh -huh. were built by Egyptians. Now, the, the adjoining pyramids, yes, but those two items, uh, I mean, it's been proven. I mean, they, they've had water erosion which it's a completely desert area now. Yeah. But 15,000 years ago, yeah. it was yeah. a wonderful place to live, and it was lots yeah. of people, you know. Yeah, it was almost jungle, I think. Almost yeah. jungle. Yeah. So, you know, my point is that, you know, there's a lot in this world we don't know and a lot to explore. Go out, read, get, you know, get books. Mm -hmm. Learn about this. Keep your mind open. Because we don't really know. We, you know, we look at things dimly through, like, uh, an opaque pane of glass. We yeah. we see traces of mm -hmm. what could have been in shadows, and mm -hmm. but you know it's out there and it's still there and it's right under your nose. I guarantee you, who, mm -hmm. wherever you are in the world, you can find something that's just really not explainable. Mm -hmm. Right and in open, your own neighborhood. Yeah, and open your mind. Open the your worst mind. mindset you can have that we encounter so often in investigating any type of, of unusual phenomena is the mentality that if it existed, somebody else would have figured it out by now. There is no somebody else. Although somebody else's aren't any better than you and I or Pat or anybody else. That's right. Because, I mean, how many times have you seen people go around their, their lives who are totally oblivious to the surroundings and don't pay attention to anything except what's right in front of their nose? There's a big, beautiful world and a big, beautiful universe out there that's both beautiful and ugly and fascinating and everything else we touched on. But, I mean, don't get into the mentality that somebody else would have done something because more often than not, nobody has. Well, I agree with everything you said except for the point about being better. You know what? I'm no better than anybody, but I'm pretty good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I'm not, you know, I'm just saying, I, I, I'm... I'm pretty good shape for the shape I'm in right now. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So, anyway, well, thank you for tuning in and uh, tune in next week. Sundays at 9 p.m. on the eastern coast of the United States. Uh, we generally release these for airing. And uh, come join the conversation with us. Let's talk about this thing. Let's see what we can figure out. And I hope you have a blessed week, and I hope that... Uh, our program, and we wish you health and happiness, all of those things. And uh, thank you for tuning in and listening to Anecdotal Notes. Thank you.